Before I begin, shall we bow our heads in prayer and commit this time to the Lord. <coughs> Dear Lord, may your words go forth in power and may not return empty. And may your words and your words alone, Lord, remain in our hearts to stir us and to guide us and to teach us your way and to cause us to follow you. Guide us in your truth, Lord, and may your Holy Spirit watch over us. This we ask and we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We've uh, completed or to some extent gone through uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and sometime uh, this week if you've been following our uh, uh, Bible reading plan, uh, we come to the book of Luke and although we've already done a Bible study about Luke last year, uh, there are certain aspects that we're going to be drilling down uh, a little bit. Uh, today's portion in Luke chapter 2 is actually a third segment uh, within Luke chapter 2 that, that has a certain aspects or characteristics about it. And the main focus I wanted to point out here was about uh, this, my father's house. Uh, what is it all about? And is it really about the house or something else? There are, within chapter 2, uh, three sayings. And in the Greek, you find this word called rima. Uh, the ruah and the rima. Ruah is the spirit. Rima is the, the breathings or the words or the sayings. And in the New Testament study, we call Rima as the sayings of Jesus. But it is not just the sayings about Jesus, but what was said about Jesus. And when you read Luke uh, chapter 1, Luke says, I am setting about an orderly account. Now, Luke is a Gentile. Uh, he is also a physician, uh, or in other words, a, a doctor or internal uh, medicine type person. And he sets out a very orderly account in the sense that he actually puts details in there which historians can actually track. For example, in verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus uh, issued a decree. So uh, any historian who wanted to find out about this would actually go into ancient historical records and they'd be able to pinpoint Caesar Augustus. Uh, yeah, he's a historical figure. Uh, did he do... Uh, census, yes, he did. He, in fact, he may have conducted a few. But within this uh, uh, passage itself in chapter 2, Luke wants to point out three sayings, particularly about this child uh, that is being born. The first saying is being uh, pronounced by the angel in uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 17. It said there, uh, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child, uh, this rima of the child. Uh, but what had been told about them, uh, in, in particular, these three points, but underlying that is this comment in chapter 1 that he will be called Jesus. Now, Jesus uh, is how we pronounce it in English in, uh, in the Maybe the Hebrew or the Greek, in Greek it would be Jesus. Uh, in, in the Aramaic or Jewish tongue, they would be calling him Yeshua. And Yeshua has a very simple meaning, which is Yahweh saves or Savior uh, is the term for it. So he's given a simple name, but a very profound name. And it's a name given to him, told by the angels to 
Mary and Joseph, you shall call him or he shall be called Jesus. But within this statement in the chapter 2 narrative, uh, several aspects are being told about this child. One, he is uh, to be known as Saviour. But that's his name, Yeshua. But it is Saviour, not only uh, the Saviour that they understand of a simple name, but he is also Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, one that had been promised from the Old Testament. But the most shocking rima, or the most shocking saying that this angel was giving to the people is, he is Lord. And the term Lord there is the same term that they would give to Yahweh of the Old Testament. So right from the outset, one voice coming from the spiritual, divine, uh, angelic beings is shouting out to the shepherds, this is Saviour, he is Messiah, and he is Lord, this child that is coming. He's going to save, he's the promised one of the Old Testament, and he is the Lord of the Old Testament now in flesh. So that was the first saying. The second saying was when you go and read a little bit further on in chapter 2 verse 33, what the prophets or prophetess Simeon and Anna said about him. Okay, so these two uh, elderly people who have been, who, who were told that before you pass, uh, these things will occur in your sight. Uh, Simeon uh, basically says the same thing that uh, Anna says, uh, my eyes have seen salvation and light for all Gentiles. Now that's another saying about Jesus, that he brings salvation, right, Savior, but he is a light not just for the Jews, but a light for all Gentiles, all the nations, and he is the glory of Israel, and the redemption of Jerusalem. That's what Luke wants to set right from the outside. So you've had sayings from the first party, angelic, divine, spiritual. You've had sayings uh, from the voice of the prophets who are inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon Simeon and Anna and they break out in this, in this particular saying, and they say about this child, as they hold, you know, you can, you can put yourself into this picture, as they hold uh, Jesus, you know, uh, you know, I can now depart in peace. I've seen the salvation and light for all Gentiles, the glory of Israel dis displayed, and the redemption of Jerusalem. And finally is the child himself. And in chapter 2, verse 49 to 50, his parents hear what this child say, but they couldn't understand it. And so this is what I want to unpack in verse uh, 49 to 52. Okay. This final saying, which now comes from the child himself, who is therefore the divine voice uh, coming through Jesus himself. Now, there are certain things which I want to bring to your attention. One is this Passover requirement. There are three festivals throughout the Jewish year which they are, in a way, told uh, you need to come back to the temple. One of the most important ones is the Passover festival. And so in the Passover festival, everyone would be gathering back towards Jerusalem and they would be making their way 
and the place will be swollen. Uh, so if ordinarily you might have about 5,000 people in that city, the number would increase to maybe about 20,000, 30,000. Okay. I won't, I won't place the figure so specifically, uh, but you have to recall during those times, the city population wasn't so great. But it will be multiplied a few times over. So one commentator said if it was 5,000 normal uh, during Passover, it will be 25 to 30,000, five times the number. Uh, I don't know whether that's a bit like Penang when we have the Georgetown Heritage Festival or what. I just know during holidays, you know, <laughs> The whole world is packed in, uh, on the island. But it's something like that, and all the place is filled up. And so you can understand how it is easy uh, to go missing and to disappear in such a large crowd. So every year, uh, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. So this was a tradition, a custom. Now, it, it ought to be noted that normally the women are excluded from this. They don't have to. But the parents go, which uh, kind of demonstrates the piety of both, uh, both Joseph and Mary. They both go. And they go and make this journey from wherever they are, in Nazareth or in Bethlehem. They make this trip. Uh, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Okay. So as was his regular pattern, Jesus, even as a young child, would go to Jerusalem and he would do this. Now, I used to read this and it's like, oh, okay, you know, we're just going for a festival, should be fun. But we also need to remember that Jerusalem is a place of danger for this child. We read in the Gospel account of Matthew how uh, Herod, being jealous of this uh, prophesied child, uh, decreed that children below the age of two would be massacred. So why would they actually take this child to go up to Jerusalem and confront possibly enemy forces uh, of Herod or the palace who were afraid of such children. Some would argue that maybe uh, because of the large numbers of people, they were relatively safe. But I would uh, want you to keep in mind some thoughts. Jerusalem, in the years when Jesus finally begins his ministry, would be a place of great anguish, great frustration and much contention. It would be the place that would eventually condemn him. And yet he regularly went. So it's a place where I also wrestle with. You know, apart from the fact that Jesus attended to the annual traditions, in another part of scripture it says, Jesus, as was his custom, went to the synagogue. Now why do I say this? It's because many people tend to view coming together in an assembly, in a fellowship, whether as a church or whether as a small group or whether as a combined meeting, a gathering, an assembly. Uh, that's what ecclesia means. That's what the church means. An assembly and a gathering of people together to worship God together. We, we tend to take it as an optional activity. Worse still, we have many people who would say, I, uh, the church bunch of hypocrites. Uh, why would I want to hang out with them? So I would urge you to look at this from the point of Jesus. If Jesus, Son of God, the very image of God Himself, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, as was His custom, would regularly go, He was hanging out with the worst bunch of hypocrites, and He would know. 
because he knew all things. And he would be hanging out with people who he could probably read into their hearts. But as was his custom, he came together. So he came together not because of the type of people that would be there. We tend to gather based on, you know, birds of a feather kind of thing. But he gathered because he was expected to be a part of the community. And so he came. And his parents made this the case that even though it was difficult, it was uh, not an easy journey. And I would point out that because his family was poor, he would likely be walking almost all the way. Even if they could afford an animal, uh, it would be probably Mary or the child that would be, be on uh, the donkey or maybe even a camel. Here's a picture of a, a caravan. Uh, it's taken uh, not too long ago, but this is, this is not about Jerusalem. This is a caravan uh, snaking out in the, the Makkah, right, going for the Hajj. But these are very similar to the type of caravans that you would have traveling uh, from one place to another. I, I give this picture so that you can imagine how could they forget their son and lose track of him. Well, one, the caravans were quite long. It's very busy. You've got sheep, you've got you know, other, other animals that are going along. And it is said that likely they may have segregated the men from the women. So you, you kind of like walk along and you think, okay, my wife has got the, my son and they're walking off somewhere and the wife thinks the husband has got the son. And then after a while, they come together and say, hey, I thought he was with you. Where is he? Then the realization comes on. So we, they, he, thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. So they've gone and, and fulfilled the Passover requirements, made their sacrifice, you know, what little sacrifice that they, they would bring. Uh, and, and they traveled on for a day. In other words, they've probably walked on. I don't know. Maybe how, how far can you walk in a day? Make a guess. Maybe about 20 kilometers to 40 kilometers, depending on how fast you walk. But they're uh, taking a pace one day away. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. So it's possibly at the end of the day when the, the, the men and the women start looking for their, you know, because they're in separate uh, groups. They come together and then that's when they realize, oh no, <laughs> where is he? We think that this is quite weird, but you know, you look in our newspapers recently, Hari Raya, I was reading the number of times people left their mom or their daughter or their son behind at the rest stop. Arrived in their destination, suddenly got out of the car, oh my goodness, where is he? And so this was not so uncommon in journeys that people forget. But when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him and after three days... They found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, several things I want to highlight here. There's a lot of narrative, but what Luke wants to highlight here is that uh, Jesus decided to stay. Okay? He decided to stay behind. Let me, let me just point this out. He made this decision to stay behind. And if you recall, how many days was he away from his parents? Uh, 
Uh, I, I see the brain start clanking in, you know, some say four. Uh, the minimum would be three days, okay? The minimum would be three days, because let me just, just show you back there, right? If you look on verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple. Minimum, three days. Now, we don't know whether the writer is saying that the total time, you know, one day when they didn't, when they traveled out, one day going back and one day searching for him, elapsed days, three days. We don't know whether he meant that or whether he meant they were out one day, it took another day to walk back and then they looked for him for three days in the city, which would be a maximum of five days. But as a parent, I don't care whether it's three days or five days, it's a lot of days to leave a 12-year-old child on his own. Yeah, some of you grandparents and parents, you, you consider this if you lost your kid in the shopping mall for three days. <laughs> uh, what would be going through your mind? So here's the thing. Jesus actually, uh, the focus of what uh, Luke is saying in this particular uh, narrative is that Jesus chose to stay behind. He, he stayed behind. Now, uh, we know, as I said, the caravan uh, travels to and fro. And why did they travel in a caravan? One, for companionship and safety. You know, you're, you're coming in a group of pilgrims. You want to bring your offerings. Robbers would target you because you're carrying all your worldly wealth or whatever you want to offer up to the temple. And so safety was in numbers. Uh, which also brings me to a point. I'm going to make a side mention here. Next week is Small Group Sunday. But we've already begun talking about small groups uh, last week and a little bit about this week. This whole idea of uh, this family and friends traveling together is this whole idea of the small groups. And within your insert, you have this, uh, yes, I would like to join a small group uh, flyer. If you're not part of a small group yet, please consider joining one. It's part of the journey. It's in our traditions. And it is a way in which we hold each other accountable and we travel in life together. That's how we encourage, provide safety for each other. The search for Jesus uh, takes roughly three days, maybe five days. Right? Now, uh, we come to this next passage. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, this is the NIV version. Uh, if you take some other versions, they may put it slightly differently. Uh, your father and I have been uh, uh, anxiously and painfully. Okay? It's, it's not a simple, uh, you know, I was a bit worried. No, it was very pained. It's a very pained situation for three days. This verse was one of the verses that prompted me to think and discuss with my wife at one point and say, at what age do we think that our children need to be able to be independent? Have you ever had this discussion before? And I said, because if Jesus was able to be independent, what age was he independent of? Now, for the Jewish people, uh, 13, for boys, 13 would be age of the bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah is when you are a son of the law 
and you are at that point responsible as a man. In other words, uh, if you, you see in the bar mitzvah, you would be carried around on your father's shoulder and it's a rite of passage uh, to say that you are an adult. Okay? Uh, you'll be brought to the rabbi, you're given a passage and he would point at a passage and you would read it in, in Hebrew. Okay? And then you would explain what it meant and the people around them, the, the, the people at the synagogue would say, yes, wahe, wahe. Uh, that tradition reminded them that they are now adults and their, their decisions and their thoughts were of consequence. Prior to that, not so. That would be at the age of 13. But Jesus, at the age of 12, is already exercising some independent thought. He can function for three days. I don't know how he found food, but it's likely in a festival that would be free makan. Okay? Uh, you know, the, the Passover feast sometimes would have uh, roasted uh, stuff, uh, food, and it was not uncommon to just hang around there and there would be food given. And if you're a kid, most people would not uh, refrain from helping you out. So would your children, at the age of uh, puberty, right, be able to know the Word, be a child of the Word, be able to interact with Scripture and talk about this, and be independent. Now, I use this as a gauge because when I want to challenge families, you know, I ask families, so do your children know their Scriptures by the time they hit puberty? Do your children know enough of the Scriptures so that when they read it, they can talk about this and that they're encouraged to do so. Now, you, you find there, uh, I'll touch that on, on that a little bit later, but Jesus is, in a way, having a dialogue with the teachers. We tend to be more concerned about, uh, yeah, when they go to college, uh, uh, are they going to be able to eat or not? Do they know how to cook? <laughs> At least learn how to fry an egg or boil some Maggie Mee or something like that. Uh, and, and sadly, both boys and girls I find nowadays do not know how to. They, they quite happily go out to the mama and just eat every day, you know, top fun or whatever. And so we ask ourselves this question, at which age do we expect our children to exercise some maturity to be able to interact with us as adults? At which point would you be able to release them to travel on their own? So have a discussion in the family about this. And I'll point to you that Jesus, age 12. Now you might say, well, during that time, a lot safer compared to now. I'm not too sure. Because they had robbers and they had killers as well. But it's more the ability of your children to have independent thought. And grandparents, uh, you are a prime source of what it means to be independent. Because you come from a different reality. Most of you, when I, when I talk, when they say, oh yeah, last time MYF, we ride on our, hop on our bicycle and travel 20 miles away to go camping. Nowadays, you try that with the grandchildren, it's unheard of. The furthest they go is to the PS4 station there and they go online. They say, I'm across the world <laughs> online. 
But I'd also want to consider this question. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus' response in verse 49 and 50 is, uh, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now you could phrase that, you know, well, is Jesus being very arrogant to his parents or what? He's answering back, huh? Uh, no, actually, it's quite neutral. The, the statement there is, uh, why were you looking for me? Uh, you should know that this would be the first place you should look at. Have you ever lost your children before? Oh yeah, I see some heads nodding. <laughs> now, when you lose your children, what goes through your mind? One of the things that would normally come would be the most likely place that the child would be would be here. Uh, my children know that when they lose me, my children know that when they lose me in a particular place, they kind of know I have a short list of where he's likely to go. Right? So if it's in Mid Valley, Mega Mall, in, in KL, uh, they, they know I'll be hanging around one area which is uh, uh, an outlet that sells stuff, uh, media, media-related stuff. Okay, so they, they'll know to look for me there. So in a way, this is what Jesus is saying. Well, you know, you could have tried looking for me here. This is where I would be, in my father's house, right? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, the, here's where it gets a little bit hairy. In the English version, you find two common translations. You either say, I, I must be in my father's house or I must be about my father's business, Right, uh, that's actually uh, not what is actually specifically stated there. Okay, verse fifty, they did not understand, is the fact that this was the saying. This is what this is what Jesus had to say about himself. So you remember, in the scope of what Luke is saying, this is what the angel said. This is what the prophets, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said. Now this is what the divine voice, the child himself, says. Did you not know that I must be? in my father's house. And so Luke is pointing to the fact that this child, his father is God on high. And later on in Luke, he would actually explain how Jesus calls them to refer to Abba, Father. A statement of who he is as uh, the divine within that Godhead but also that he actually intimately calls his father and his house. And not only that, as people who are now followers of him, he's calling us, come to my father's house. The invitation to be a part of that house. Now this, this bit is where I want to unpack uh, a difficult translation. Uh, it is necessary, and in the Greek it says D-E-I, day. It is necessary, I must, okay, that I ought to be about of my father. <clears throat> now, why is, this, uh, why is this difficult? In the Greek, you see those words uh, uh, underlined and in bold. Entwa to patros, uh, and that word day. If you actually literally translate it into the English, what it says is, didn't you know I must be about the dot, dot, dot of my father? 
And uh, the translators look at this and say, you know, we think he's alluding to the temple because that's where he is. I must be about uh, the... And so people fill in the blanks. I must be about the temple of my father or I must be about the business of my father. But the essence of what he is communicating is, I must be about my father. Whatever I do, it is related to my father's work. And whatever I am doing, or what I am about, is all about the father. And it is necessary. Now, what we take from this is this question, um, what was Jesus doing? He was at worship and prayer in the temple, at his feet in the word, and also at his work in the ministry. It is also a corrective and a teaching for us to take away from this, that what is necessary according to Jesus, and therefore also necessary for us, is to be about the Father's business. There is no dichotomization of, uh, you know, work and ministry. Many people say, I come to church and I do holy stuff and spiritual stuff on Sunday, and then Monday to Saturday, I go about doing all the other things I want to do, which is related to work, nothing to do with spiritual stuff. Uh, yesterday, many, some of our friends gathered together at the Alpha Workplace uh, uh, Conference and where it was drummed in again and again and again, more than 80% of Jesus' teachings was not done in the church, was done in the marketplace. More than 70% of His miracles were done in the marketplace, in the regular out of uh, thing, not in the synagogue or the church. So there is no separation between work and church or spiritual and secular. But what he is also arguing at this point is what is necessary for you and for me is in all that we are doing, are, are we at worship and prayer in the temple? Now I like to highlight here, the temple in the past used to be a physical building. But what Jesus has done is, through Paul as well, is to say, your body, your people gathered together. Individually and corporately, when you are together, that is the temple. For where two or more gathered in my name, I am there with them. What is the temple? The temple is where the Spirit of God abides. Right? So at worship and in prayer, are we in touch with God? When we sing our hymns, are we actually in touch with God or are we just saying these words, parroting it out? We're here, but we're spiritually disengaged, not connected, thinking about some other problem. Are we at His feet in the Word, in the Scriptures? Are we at His work in the ministry? And here's my sincere appeal, uh, particularly since I've been in youth ministry for a really long time. I started teaching Sunday school when I was 18 years old and carried on until all the way to 40 and I'm still engaged in youth ministry and young adult work. The number one thing that many teachers and pastors will tell you is that during school exam period, 
the children will stop coming to church. Because the parents say they need to study. Let them stay at home and study. Increasingly in this current age and period, I'm going to say this, it may hurt, but you need to hear this, is people say, uh, cannot come for church or for any gathering, whether MYF or whether any church gathering. Children got tuition. Children got all these other activities. Now, I used to think, well, it's okay, ma, your, you know, your bodies, the temple, you are there as long as you're worshipping God and all that. Until one day, someone told me, there's a problem with that particular attitude. Because what the parent has demonstrated to the children is that the gathering together of the saints is optional. That when you have other priorities like your exams, your tuition, your other fun stuff you want to do, this one can take second place. That's the dangerous ethic that we are teaching to the children when we say these things are optional. I know it's hard, but I need to say this because I've been getting feedback from many people to say most of our people now, even Sunday or so, they have tuition. Sunday is like the busiest day for them. And so where is, where is this uh, separation? I also want to ask this from a point of, are we looking at the necessary? Because what Jesus says, what is necessary is that I am about my Father's work. My job when I look at my children is not to ensure that they are super brilliant, get the best degree and have the best life. My job is to ensure that they are equipped so that when God wants to use them for whatever He calls them to do, they are ready and prepared. And so another thing which I need to challenge our congregation with is when many people have been prepared and ready and suddenly God calls and says, come, I want you to be a missionary. I want you to work in social welfare. I want you to do this job, low-paying in fact, you probably end up pouring out more money and effort than the place. I want you to do this. And the parent says, no, I didn't invest all this money in your degree in order for you to basically throw it away in doing these kind of stupid things, like being a pastor. Uh, you laugh, but it happens. I hear it again and again and again. Children come, or they're, teen, you know, they're, not, they're not teens anymore. You know? Some of them are adults. So the adults will come and say, you know, I, I want to come into the ministry, but I have opposition. I, I don't have their blessing. And until I get their blessing, I can't go. Hear these words of what Jesus is saying. It is necessary to be about the Father's work. Now, I'm not telling parents, whenever your children say go into ministry, oh yeah, carry on and go. No, please don't get me wrong. I believe that your task as parents and grandparents is to help your child discern whether this is God's will for them. Because if it is God's will, then you ought to support it. Because if you go against it, you are going to break your teeth over it. You want to fight with God. Huh? But if it is not God's will and your children are you know, bent on following something that is tickling their fancy for a while, then that's a path of destruction for them as well. 
So the parent or the adult has the difficult task of trying to help their children discern with as much information as possible and then encourage them to do what is necessary, which is to be at the father's work. You must understand, right? I come from an area which believes that the father's work is not necessarily being pastor. That the father's work can be the businessman in the marketplace, can be the politician doing politics, can be the road sweeper doing road sweeping, can be the chakwetel man doing his chakwetel. But whatever he is doing, he is doing it because God has called him to do it to the best of his ability. That's what we are called to do, to uh, ensure that they're about the father's business to the best of their ability. So if they're not equipped and they're not called to be pastoral ministry, don't shove them into ministry. I also have to deal with that. People who think that, oh, I want to be a pastor because everybody thinks it's good to be a pastor, then they come in and they damage a lot of people. So it cuts both ways. But whatever it is, what is necessary? Parents, children, we need to determine. Jesus knew that he needed to be about his father's business and that's where he was. At worship, in prayer, in the temple, at his feet, in the word, at his work, in the ministry. Question to parents. You know, we have uh, prayer meetings. You know, we have uh, small group meetings. Are you going? And are you equipping your children to do this? Because if you don't go, your children also will look at it and say, Nonila, mommy and daddy didn't go, so it's not really important, so therefore I also won't go. One of the primary reasons we notice that youth and adults leave the church is because they see their parents and their parents treat the church as just to fulfill their needs, not necessarily to contribute to the needs of the church. I don't often see parents who bring their children to a prayer meeting. But I, when I have seen it happen, it totally changes that prayer meeting. Because when children pray, something amazing happens. Have you ever heard a child pray? I've had phenomenal opportunities to hear them pray. And they're really encouraging, especially when they remember you and they pray for you. Here you are thinking, I'm going to pray for this kid. And the kid decides to remember an auntie, an uncle in church, and they pray for them. I was encouraged recently when uh, one of the counsellors said, you know, we're taking the prayer items that we sent out. I sent out a regular prayer bulletin to our leaders and I asked them to pass this on to the small group leaders. So if you haven't gotten it, it's maybe because you're not connected to the small group leaders. But we pass it on and some in the, in the youth uh, committee, they actually prayed. They specifically chose the aunties and uncles who are, you know, homebound and all that. It says we pray for them. Not only that, they say, uh, this one, my relative. And they pray for that. How are we teaching our children and how are we ourselves being that example that we are about the necessary work of the Father? And it's hard because it takes a lot of encouragement because sometimes I don't feel like doing this. Why would they? Sometimes they don't want to do it. Why would I force them? But I need to be a model such that when I go, they find it fun enough to want to follow. 
Jesus ends with these thoughts. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Let me clearly put this across to all of us who have parents. God, the Creator, was obedient to the Creator, <laughs> His parents. And so for all of those teenagers, adults and all that who are thinking in a very rebellious uh, attitude towards their parents, remember the effort that God, with all His mind and all His knowledge, said He was obedient to them. And His mother treasured all these things. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. What are we trying to say here? Even God Himself learn obedience. Are you greater than God? Will you honour your parents and obey them insofar that they are not calling you to do something that is inherently evil? You may not like it, but if it's not evil, obey, do it. Parents, will you treasure in your heart the things that have been said about your child? Because in the same way Mary remembered all these things, she remembered that he was from the father, that he needed to be about his father's work. And if that included dying on the cross, she would have to be the one who would see him there. She was the one who had to deal with his body after. It was the worst worst thing that any parent would have to deal with. But it was necessary and she remembered these things. Finally, will we grow in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man? You can't grow in wisdom and stature unless you're in a community together. You want to be in good standing with each other, you must be together. And so this, I appeal to you, if you're not part of a small group, please do so. Join one that is near you. Let me end with these three challenges. Are you and your children to be about or of the Father? Do you consider that these things that we do together a doing of things for the Father's sake, about the Father's business? Or are we busy chasing our own dreams and our own ambitions and we're separating all these things? Secondly, will you remember what is necessary Do you know, uh, one of the weird things I discovered when I was a Sunday school teacher in uh, Kale Wesley, it was actually the kids who, in spite of all their exam pressures and all their, their stresses, who continued to come to uh, Sunday school and youth activity, they, the word, they were the ones who excelled. I asked the parents once, you know, hey, your exception to the norm, you know, your kids are still coming to Sunday school and church activities when all the other kids are busy studying. And the mom, and the, uh, the mom said this, she says, well, they're supposed to study during their weekdays. Coming to Sunday school is actually their fun time. They actually de-stress when they come. So if they're pressure cooker all the way Monday to Sunday, they'll just go crazy. And the kids said so as well. We come here, we relax. I don't have a book in front of me. What a relief. And so enough days, seven days, we come together in the assembly. Finally, will you grow in God's grace together uh, as part of a caravan, as part of a group of people traveling together, as part of a small group? Will we grow in God's grace together? Shall we pray?
Lord, in your mercy and your love, help us to hear your word. And if it has touched us, Lord, help us to redeem that which was lost and to call upon those, Lord, who we are called to minister to. Guide us, Lord, in your truth. Uh, lead us in your way. And help us, Lord, to make uh, restitution, reconciliation, and to do the necessary work, Lord. We ask and commit all this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.